Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History uh, 327 and 1945 to Present. Uh, here to talk to y'all about the 90s. Hopefully y'all all had a very good spring break. Uh, so right now I'm going to give you the time to get over to Moodle and get the PowerPoint for this week. Uh, if you notice, there are a lot of resources this week. Uh, a lot of readings, a lot of videos. Um, some of the videos are just kind of for fun. Uh, for instance, the most 90s thing you'll ever watch. Um, don't watch it yet. I'll, I'll tell you when to watch it, but yeesh, is it 90s. Uh, as I said today, last class we talked about the Cold War ending. Uh, talked about, you know, the Gulf War. Talked about uh, Bush Sr., you know, George H.W. Bush. Uh, today we're talking about the 90s, specifically 1992 to like 2000 and 1999, somewhere in there. So if you, if you get going on that PowerPoint, uh, when I was looking in Google Docs, I, I found this font, which I think is so 90s looking, I had to go with it. So sorry if it's somewhat hard to read, but I think you'll be okay. So if you go over one side, we're talking first about the election of 1992. Now, all things considered, you know, if the election had been held in 1991, Bush would have had a really easy path to re-election. In fact, he should have had a very easy path to re-election. Uh, by the end of the Persian Gulf War, his, he was up to about a 90% approval rating, which was the highest in history up to that point. No other president had gotten anywhere close to a 90% approval rating. Uh, George H.W. Bush had it right after the Persian Gulf War. Uh, the only other president to, close, to actually surpass that was his son, George W. Bush, right after 9-11. Right after 9-11, uh, W. Bush had like something like 95% approval ratings, but it was kind of temporarily. Uh, George H.W. Bush had also presided over the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, which had something, as we talked about last class and hopefully y'all discuss, had taken up a lot of mental energy up to that point. In fact, a lot of the 90s is America coming to grips with what's going to take up our mental energy now that the Cold War is over. The thing is with voters, the thing with elections, though, is that voters tend to be kind of fickle. Voters want to know what you've done for them lately. And by the time we get to the 92 election, what that was happening lately was a recession. In addition, in general, American voters uh, care more about domestic issues more than fi uh, foreign triumphs. Uh, if a president does a lot of good stuff foreignly, but domestically they, they look like they're not taking care of house, uh, that is a recipe to lose an election. Uh, it opens up a president to accusations that they've been neglecting the home front. Now, Bill Clinton, if you go over one slide, Bill Clinton in all this is very much an unknown factor. Uh, a lot of the big names of the Democratic Party thought Bush was unbeatable in 1992. Uh, people like Mario Cuomo, who is governor of New York at this time period, a lot of the big Democrat names, they feel that they're not going to run for office because Bush is unbeatable. Unlike the Republican Party, which, you know, with, with things like Nixon, you know, he lost an election, but he was able to come back. Uh, generally, if somebody gets a nomination for the Democratic Party and they lose the election, they don't get re-nominated. Um, it happens sometimes for Republicans. It never happens for Democrats. So considering how strong Bush looked, it was almost like they needed a sacrificial lamb. Clinton, at this time, was the six-time governor of Arkansas. Now, I bet you're wondering, wait, I thought Clinton was actually fairly young. He was. He was actually uh, uh, mid-40s whenever this happens, uh, mainly because 
he first becomes governor of Arkansas whenever he's 31. In fact, he's called the Boy Governor. As you can see in this picture, that's at his first inauguration. He looks super young in that picture. And that's, uh, that's Hillary right next to him, who looks completely different. Uh, she has very, very 70s-looking, very 70s-looking get-up right there. Uh, Clinton, as I said, he was only 31 whenever he was first elected governor of Arkansas. And Arkansas only has two-year terms for governor. So he'd been governor for, you know, 12 years, but he's a six, he's been, he's won six times. Uh, he feels that he's done pretty much everything he could possibly do in Arkansas, which is correct. He'd been attorney general for a while. He was governor for, for, you know, for 12 years, you know, six terms. Uh, he'd done pretty much everything he could possibly do in Arkansas. He also feels that Bush might be weaker than he appears because of, you know, some undercurrent. Even before there was a recession, he feels that Bush might be vulnerable. But the main reason he feels Bush is vulnerable is because of the recession. Uh, the recession's pretty bad, and Bush also has to go against some of his big promises. Specifically, his most famous promise of read my lips, no new taxes. That doesn't happen. The recession happens, and Bush is forced to raise taxes uh, to help stem like things like inflation. Uh, economists said it was the right thing to do. The problem was, for the general public, it looked like he was just another politician lying. Uh, kind of famously, uh, David Letterman does a little bit where he shows you know, Bush do that, and Letterman replies, Read my lips, you lied. So it's kind of a skewer thing. Also, um, this Bush is getting a lot of flack for something he hadn't done yet, but something he was negotiating, which is NAFTA. Uh, you do need to know about NAFTA. It's something that really defines the early 90s. It's something that George W. Sorry, H.W. Bush had been negotiating. Uh, NAFTA stands for the North American Free Trade Agreement. Now that the Cold War is over, um, let me go back a little bit. During the Cold War, one of the ways that the U.S. sought to limit communist influence in places like Europe was through free trade. And what I mean by free trade is trade without tariffs and things like that. The idea being, you know, if the U.S. says, hey, you can trade with us, we have the most money... These European countries will have a market to sell their stuff. Americans can sell their goods. Generally, economists like free trade. Um, now, a, a criticism of free trade is that it hurts the home economy. The idea that, you know, um, the U.S. is not keeping its money at home. Uh, jobs may be outsourced overseas. However, during the Cold War, it's seen as something to do to help prevent communist influence. But now that the Cold War is over... Uh, George H.W., sorry, yeah, George H.W. Bush, not W., sorry, B Bush Sr., shall we say, he is trying to get rid of trade barriers within North America itself. Basically, he's like, hey, all economists are pretty much all in agreement that free trade is good, tariffs are not good, they're not good for the economy, so why don't we have free trade within the North American continent? That'd be the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Now, like I said, he is negotiating it. He hasn't signed it yet, but this is getting a lot of backlash. There's a lot of backlash against NAFTA, uh, mainly because of the insinuation that it would undervalue U.S. labor and that American companies, if they didn't have tariffs or any reasons or incentives to stay in America, would go over to a place like Mexico for their manufacturing jobs because labor is cheaper there. Now, this backlash is personified by H. Ross Perot, 
uh, pretty much always called Ross Perot. He's a Texas billionaire who created the Reform Party. Uh, he made his money in oil. And the Reform Party is its actually a fairly important party when it comes to the future of U.S. politics, even though it wins very few elections. It's a hodgepodge of fairly populist views that operate somewhat to the right of the Republican Party. Uh, generally, the Republican Party is the party of free trade, things like that. The Reform Party is not for free trade. Uh, the Reform Party thinks that we should keep U.S. manufacturing and jobs at home. Likewise, uh, the U.S. is spending too much money. The government has gotten too big. It has some libertarian views as part of it. Now, Perot is the highest profile third-party candidate in recent memory. Um, you know, if you put a gun to my head and said who's the, who's the biggest before him, uh, Wallace is up there, but I would actually say probably since Teddy Roosevelt, no candidate has had as much of the imagination of an election as Ross Perot. He is invited to speak in the debates. Uh, he's invited to be part of the debates. If you go back to the first picture, you'll see all three of the candidates uh, on the debate stage. That's something that typically does not happen in presidential debates. Uh, by the time you get to the final, you know, the Republican and Democratic nominee, that's pretty much all you have for the uh, debate stage. But Perot was added to it. Likewise, Perot did things like have infomercials. Uh, because he was rich and didn't want to, like, you know, have commercial time, he would literally buy out primetime blocks on network television where he pretty much would do a slideshow. Um, he would hold up cards and say uh, things like, oh, you know, NAFTA is going to create a, a job vacuum. Uh, he says all the jobs are going to go for Mexico. In fact, one of his famous phrases is that there's going to be a large sucking sound as U.S. jobs leave the United States for Mexico. Now, despite his unconventional tactics, Perot really hit a vein in American politics. Uh, he was getting quite a bit of support, mainly from who people who call themselves kind of the forgotten people, uh, you know, manufacturing workers, things like that, people who may not have higher education, people, the working class individuals, people who make up a pretty sizable percentage of the country. Now, with these two challengers, Bush is pretty, pretty, um, he's not in the best position. Uh, Perot is taking away voters that might have otherwise voted for Bush. Um, does Perot throw the election for Clinton? That's debatable. I've seen pretty convincing research one side or the other. Um, it does hold, though, that Ross Perot does get a lot of vote. And it is clear that he is hitting a vein in American thought, uh, some economic uncertainty. Now, Bush does try to balance all the bad economic news with his successes. The problem is most of his successes are international, not domestic. You know, he's able to end the Cold War. He's able to win the Persian Gulf War. But domestically, he hadn't really had that much successful. Probably his biggest success is the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. Which is definitely a good thing. I'm not belittling the Americans with Disabilities Act, but by its very nature, it does not impact a majority of the population. A lot more people lost their jobs than got protections from the Americans with Disabilities Act. So by the time you get to the election, uh, Clinton gets 43% of the popular vote, Bush gets 37%. What's remarkable is Ross Perot. Ross Perot gets about 20% of the popular vote. 
which is the highest popular vote percentage since the bonkers 1912 election. Uh, 1912, if you've had me for 256, you've heard me talk about 1912. 1912 was a weird election. It was just a weird election from top to bottom. But he gets the most uh, popular votes for a third party since Theodore Roosevelt. So, dang. Uh, However, it is not close electorally. If you look at the Electoral College map, uh, it's pretty evident that uh, Clinton gets a lot of the vote. A lot of the vote. He gets the Electoral College vote. He gets 370 Electoral College votes to Bush's 168. Ross Perot, despite getting 20% of the popular vote, gets no Electoral College votes. Now, this is interesting because uh, there have been candidates who got much lesser percentage of the popular vote, but they did get Electoral College votes. Uh, George Wallace springs to mind, for instance. Now, something I want you to notice about this Electoral College map seems to go against what had been the case. Remember, Reagan is able to switch the South from being solid Democrat to pretty much the solid South. But what you see here with Clinton is that there are some deep South states that go for Clinton. I mean, his home state of Arkansas, sure, but Clinton gets Louisiana. Clinton gets Tennessee. Clinton gets Georgia. Clinton is almost the exception that proves the rule of the, of the party's electorate switching. Okay, I, I don't say the party switched. That's too simplistic of saying it. It just shows that um, something is going on, and Clinton is able to get some Southern vote, Southern support. Now, Bill Clinton is our first baby boomer president. Um, in fact, here's a fun little bit of trivia. We have had exactly three baby boomer presidents. Uh, what's interesting about all three of them is that they were all born in the same year. In fact, they were all born three months apart. Uh, Bill Clinton was born in August of 46. George W. Bush was born in July of 46. And Donald Trump was born in June of 46. And it's ironic that each president has gotten older, like they were a little bit or older in the, in the month. Now, uh, another interesting thing about Clinton is that he's the first president since Franklin Roosevelt to have never served in the military. Um, Military service had been something pretty common for presidential candidates, but uh, Bill Clinton never actually served in the military. Now, this is interesting. His lack of military experience comes into play with the early campaign promise he does. Uh, Clinton suggests fairly early in the campaign, in fact, it's one of his main campaign promises, that perhaps homosexuals could openly serve in the military. Uh, this is not to say there had never been gay soldiers before. There had. Uh, thing is, they if you were an open homosexual, you could easily be court-martialed. Uh, this is something that Clinton argues against. He says it's a waste of money for the military. He's like, you know, a gay soldier is fine. They can, they can serve just as well as anybody else. Likewise, we're wasting too much money. He's like, we've wasted this many million dollars doing court-martials for soldiers whose only crime was being gay. We could save that money for bullets or give it back to the taxpayers. Why are we wasting this money? Now, this could have just been a campaign promise. And by the way, Clinton wasn't even inaugurated yet until some of the uh, gay rights groups started pressuring him to make good on this pledge. So what ends up happening is that Clinton, who gets elected mainly because of the economy, in fact, Clinton's slogan during uh, this campaign is, it's the economy, stupid. Um, It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, uh, comma, stupid. Saying basically, you know, George H.W. Bush doesn't have his finger on everything. It's all about the economy. Uh, Clinton gets elected saying he is going to be the one to fix the economy. And generally, presidents, when they get elected, get a little bit of a honeymoon. Clinton doesn't really have that. 
Because even before he's inaugurated, he's getting bombarded all the time with questions about gay people in the military. Now, one person who's against this is Colin Powell. If you go one more, uh, there is Colin Powell. Colin Powell is the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, that's pretty much the U.S. military's main guy. Uh, the Joint Chiefs are the heads of the respective branches of the military. And if you're head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you're pretty much considered to be the main military person. I mean, yes, I know the president is commander-in-chief, but you're the top general. Uh, Colin Powell had been Joint Chiefs of Staff under Bush, and he is very popular, and so he is retained under Clinton. Uh, Powell says to do this would undermine morale uh, of the soldiers. It might impact our, our fighting ability. Uh, this goes on for a while. There are actually uh, congressional hearings about this. So early in, President, uh, in Clinton's presidency, you have House and Senate hearings about gay people in the military. And what comes out are some very interesting stances which seem contradictory to the general status quo. For instance, you have some Democratic senators, some Democratic politicians, like uh, Robert Byrd, famously in West Virginia, saying that he is actually in favor of keeping the gay ban. He says gay people don't need to be involved in the military. Uh, says something along the lines that Bill Clinton can establish something that um, you know, Hitler was never able to do, undermine the American military and make them weaker, you know, defeat the American military. Uh, whereas some uber-conservatives, most notably Barry Goldwater, who, if you remember from 1964... Barry Goldwater was like the most conservative person of all time when it comes to his presidential elections. He is actually against the ban. Uh, Goldwater, earlier in his life, was in the army and he was the head of a, um, he was an officer in charge of a segregated black unit. And he said it was stupid. We shouldn't have had black units. They were perfectly capable of serving. They didn't need to be segregated. And we're doing the same thing that we did to the black people, to the gay people. Uh, so it is interesting. It is interesting. Uh, what comes out of this is a compromise. You have one more slide. What comes out of this is a compromise. Clinton knows he uh, there is not a lot of popular support for this. Uh, the country is none too keen about theoretically weakening the force of the military. So basically what Clinton ends up doing is a compromise that appeases absolutely nobody. It's called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, basically... The no-to-ask portion is if you're a recruiter or an officer, you cannot ask a soldier their sexual orientation. However, there's the don't-tell part of it, which is if you're a soldier, you cannot say your sexual orientation if you're homosexual. If you're straight, I guess you could say it, but if you're gay, you're not supposed to say it. So you can't be open in the military. So it kind of makes this very compromised position. Uh, Clinton says even this is not a perfect solution. He says it's not going to appease everybody, and he's right. In fact, it appeases absolutely nobody. Uh, gay rights groups blast him for uh, compromising, saying he's just another politician lying. Whereas Republicans hail this as evidence of Clinton being nothing but hot air, and all this talk about focusing mainly on the economy during the campaign is more of a lie that he said because he really just wants to change the culture of the United States, change her morality. So this is kind of the Clinton's first little baptism by fire when it comes to the presidency. He's about to get another one, uh, the infamous two-for-one deal. I shouldn't say infamous. Um, I do need to mention that Hillary Clinton is Clinton's wife, and she's a different sort of first lady. Uh, the two met while they were both at Yale Law School. And um, at first, she actually has the higher profile. She has more of the rockets dropped her behind, more of the rockets dropped to her behind. 
Uh, she gets more of the plum positions. Uh, she helps with the House Judiciary Committee as they try to impeach Nixon. However, once Clinton becomes governor of Arkansas, which, remember, he becomes governor of Arkansas fairly young, uh, she becomes a first lady. She does her usual hosting, but she also, she's a partner at a law firm in uh, Little Rock. She serves on a lot of different committees, deals with boards of different charities. She's a lot more on hands-on than most other first ladies have been. Uh, Clinton considers her her big sorry Clinton considers her his biggest ally and joked during the campaign that voters were getting a two for one deal. Basically, you know, you're getting me as president, but you're also getting Hillary Clinton almost as co-president. Uh, this sort of thing had kind of happened before, most notably with John Kennedy and then ro- getting Robert Kennedy as Attorney General. So the idea that you know you're getting Hillary Clinton as part of this. That was something they joked about. There was always uh, criticism of Clinton for deferring too much to Hillary. And that really comes into play with what happens with healthcare. Go over one more slide. Uh, this dynamic really gets challenged whenever Clinton appoints Hillary to the head of his healthcare initiative. Uh, America has a broke, sorry, had a broken healthcare system. Um, Healthcare is a very complicated issue. I know right now we're becoming very intimately familiar with healthcare because of this corona stuff. Likewise, what's federal responsibility? What should be a company's responsibility? What should be the state's responsibility? Healthcare is complicated, especially when you're dealing with health insurance. Health insurance is something that you typically get from your job, but what if you lose your job? Shouldn't you be able to get health insurance? Uh, Also, insurance typically raises the rates of stuff because doctors can charge more and insurance is going to pay for it. And there was a big hairy imbroglio about are some Americans not getting health care? And Clinton wants to make sure that health care is passed. He wants universal health care. He wants all Americans to get health care. This is something that um, Franklin Roosevelt had thought about doing with the first Social Security Act. This is something that Truman tried to do. Uh, He couldn't get congressional approval. And something Lyndon B. Johnson got partially. He got Medicare and Medicaid. But the idea of universal health care has been something that the left of America has wanted for quite a while. Now, universal health care is not unusual. It's not even really unique. Uh, a place like Germany has had you know universal health care for its citizens since its inception, like in 1870. Most other European countries have it. Um, England has a national health system which is very popular. Canada has socialized uh, universal health care. It's something that America, though, has been hesitant for because it does cost quite a bit of money. Also, America has a much larger population than those places. Uh, America has about 300 million people. That's considerably more than, you know, the United Kingdom or Switzerland or Sweden or all these other European countries that have socialized medicine. And... He wants to get this passed, and he picks his wife, even though she has no real experience on the issue. I mean, yes, she's capable, yes, she's done law stuff before, but she was a lawyer, not a doctor. She didn't really focus on insurance law. She didn't necessarily know too much about this. And she becomes his point person. She does congressional hearings about this. And, okay, getting universal health care passed would have been a tough sell even without Hillary's involvement. Um, Obamacare, which is what we have now, isn't even universal health care. It's mandating that Americans buy health care. It's, it's not that the government provides you health care. You hear talk during the election of things like Medicare for all. That's universal health care. 
It's still a controversial issue. It would have been tough anyway, but ye gods, putting Hillary on this made her a lightning rod for criticism. Republicans were able to com- com- uh, campaign fairly successfully that uh, universal health care is going to raise taxes, which is something nobody can really deny. I mean, universal health care will uh, increase taxes. It's going to increase taxes on employers. It's going to te- uh, increase taxes on you know, John Q. taxpayer. Also, they claim that most Americans are happy with their health insurance they get from their job, which uh, actually had some legs in this time period. Most Americans who have health insurance are okay with it. They don't think too much about it. It's only those Americans who don't have health insurance. Now, this plan dies a fairly early death. Um, this doesn't go very far. Uh, by by the time you get to like you know September of 1994, the Clinton health care plan is dead pretty much, um, and she is the recipient of pretty much all the criticism. Um, Hillary is considered early on to be an easier co- uh, target for criticism than Bill Clinton. Uh, there are elements of Hillary Clinton which rub some people the wrong way. Some think she's too tough of a you know too tough a lady. She's not feminine. All sorts of criticism. I'm not going to get into it, but. You know, Hillary Clinton ran for president a couple years ago. You know who she is, so I'm not going to have to explain to you who Hillary Clinton is. Now, the timing of all this could not have been worse for Clinton. Because when this healthcare stuff is defeated, it's about two months before the 1994 midterm election. And Republicans are able to kind of portray themselves as, quote, the defenders of the honest folks against, quote, the know-it-all liberals. Uh, Republicans are able to really, really tap into this pretty strong. Uh, the Republican Party of this time period has two main leaders. If you go over one slide, you'll see them. Newt Gingrich and Bob Dole. Uh, Bob Dole was the senator from Kansas. Um, and Newt Gingrich is the House Minority Whip, and he is from Georgia. Uh, Dole was a World War II vet. Uh, he had been in Congress for forever. Uh, he had been in the Senate for 25 years. He had been in the House for four terms before that. Uh, he had unsuccessfully tried to run for president a few times, uh, never, never made it to the final, you know, uh, election. He always got drummed out of the primaries. Uh, Gingrich, he's, I don't even know what to say about his background. Um, he has a PhD from Tulane in history, so, hey, we both have history PhDs. Um, I guess I would call him a, a scholar, I suppose. Um, he didn't really teach college that long. He, he did, you know, write a dissertation, which I've read. Um, what Gingrich brings to this, and go back, go back one page, Gingrich is able to make this midterm election a national referendum. Now, this is something that bucks conventional wisdom. Uh, conventional wisdom is that for a party to win in a midterm elections, you gotta go district by district. You can't just make that a, a national issue. You can't campaign on, you know, as, as, a, as, as a country, you know, on a national level. Conventional wisdom is, you know, all elections are local. All politics are local. You need to focus on the ground, go district by district. Uh, Gingrich nationalizes the midterm elections with what he calls his contract with America. And he's able to make this kind of this nationwide, across-the-board Republican Party thing. Basically, the contract with America is a list of a bunch of different bills that he says he's going to get passed within the first 100 days of the next... If Republicans win, we're going to get all these bills passed in the House. 
Uh, included are things like balancing the budget. In fact, they wanted a balanced budget amendment, where basically the government cannot spend in the deficit. Uh, Republicans have long accused the federal government of spending too much money, of getting too big. Um, you know, they need to be more physically responsible. They should only spend the money they make in taxes. Uh, he wants to do th- another bill has to do with prison sentencing. Uh, get more tough on crime. Uh, you know, have more mandatory jail sentences, longer jail sentences for criminals. Uh, he also wants to decrease welfare spending. Uh, one, another bill has to do with welfare spending. The idea that, you know, Americans are getting paid too much money not to work. You still have talk of the welfare queens, things like that. Another one is tort reform. Uh, That has to do with frivolous lawsuits. They say that lawsuits need to have a certain level of how much money can be gained in a lawsuit. They said people are getting rich off of lawsuits. They're getting major punitive damages. It's a whole bunch of other different bills. Now, the other thing Gingrich is able to do when he nationalizes his election he, um, he circulates this little playbook, he calls it. It's this little book of how to use language. How, Demo- how Republicans should attack Democrats using certain terms. Terms like greed, corrupt, radical, bizarre, and sick. Now this idea is to make messaging into sound bites. The idea is basically Republicans should have a unified platform that they, they talk about all Democrats the same way. The idea that Republicans are this one national movement taking on a Democrats, another national movement. This had generally not been the case in elections up to this point, especially when it comes to congressional elections or the district level. Generally, both parties really talked about the individual candidates, talk about what's good for this district. They make the election local. Gingrich's playbook says we make this national. Say, yes, maybe your Democratic congressman's okay, but he supports, supports sick and bizarre policies that are greedy and corrupt. So even though your congressman may not be corrupt, he's a Democrat, and ergo supports greedy, corrupt, radical, bizarre, sick policies. This works like gangbusters. The 94 midterm election are one of the biggest Republican victories of all time. It's one of the biggest midterm electoral, sorry, midterm, not electoral, midterm congressional, there we go, victories of all time. Republicans are able to take over both houses of Congress. This is something that has not happened pretty much since FDR. Republicans have both uh, houses of Congress. Gingrich now becomes the Speaker of the House, which is theoretically the third most powerful person in America. Um, that's debatable. You, I, I might argue the Speaker of the House is higher than the Vice President. Uh, vice President doesn't do that much other than stay alive and occasionally break votes in the Senate. Uh, if Congress has its act together, if the Speaker of the House is able to get Congress to get what he wants pat, what he or she wants passed, uh, you could argue that the Speaker of the House is the second most powerful person in America. Um, third in line of secession. Now, this is interesting. Go over one more picture. You're going to see the mid-90s power trio uh, of Clinton, Gingrich, and Dole. Now, Clinton admits in his 1995 State of the Union, which you'll be reading, that re- voters truly wanted reform. He says voters wanted some sort of reform. Uh, voters ma- sent a message. He says, you know, they have a mandate that they want business not as usual, and I'm going to obey them. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to give what they want. In fact, even in, this, even in his State of the Union, right after the midterms, he says, 
oh yeah, all that contract with America stuff, smaller government, I'm already doing it. Now, Clinton does do a smart thing. He steps aside for a little bit to let, uh, you know, take some of the oxygen out of the room, let Gingrich get the, get the attention for quite a while. However, Clinton also starts cutting spending. In fact, uh, you might make the argument, uh, I've had, had a lot of people make the argument before, I might actually believe it, that you could argue Bill Clinton was the most successful Republican president of all time because a lot of what he's able to accomplish is kind of Republican talking points. For instance, he cuts government spending. In fact, in that speech, in the State of the Union speech, he talks about how he's already cut so many jobs. He's like, you know, I've cut 2,000 American... Uh, Jobs within the federal government because Americans are best served by going into business for themselves. Likewise, he passes welfare reform. Clinton passes welfare reform, which is something that a lot of liberal Democrats don't care for, but it's something that the Republicans have wanted for quite a while. So this shows that Clinton is okay with Republican policies. He says it makes good physical shit, um, sense. Another good evidence of this is NAFTA. Remember, NAFTA is a thing that Ross Perot hates for Bush. Uh, Clinton actually passes NAFTA. NAFTA. Uh, Clinton is the one who signs NAFTA into law. Remember, NAFTA, free trade, that is prototypical, like, made-in-a-lab Republican talking points. And yet Clinton is able to do that, and because he's able to do that, he's able to get the credit for the economy stuff. Meanwhile, Bob Dole is getting very much not in favor of Gingrich's rhetoric. Um... Gingrich is very populist. He's saying all this stuff. He's promising the American, all the American people all these things. Uh, Bob Dole don't play that. Bob Dole doesn't like that. Bob Dole doesn't want this for the Senate. Where Bob Dole is senator. He's House Majority Leader. Uh, sorry, uh, not House Majority Leader. Senate Majority Leader. Not House. He's in the Senate. And he claims that the Senate is a different body. He says the Senate is a more august body. It's a more... Uh, Refined. It's an upper-level body. We don't go to this sort of populist stuff. We don't say we're going to make sure we pass certain bills. That's something that you only do in the House. That's House rhetoric. And so Bob Dole actually makes a point of saying that contract with America does not apply to the Senate. He's like, the Senate, we're going to do our own thing in our own way. We're not going to pander to the American people as such. This is kind of old-school senator mentality. Um, and so because of this, the Senate does not pass some of the big contract with America bills. Probably the most notable one is the balanced budget amendment. Uh, that actually was going to be a, an amendment to the Constitution. Uh, Dole makes sure that it does not pass the Senate. Dole thinks that this is just, um, you know, it doesn't make decent sense. Uh, there's no reason to do this. Why do we have to make sure the, the budget is balanced? Because things are extenuating circumstances. What about at a time of war? What about at a time of financial crisis? We shouldn't be held into this. And even though they don't have a balanced budget, Congress is still in charge of budgetary stuff. And so Gingrich wants to make sure he tries to balance a budget. This, ironically, is the end of the Gingrich honeymoon. Because Gingrich and the Republicans want to cut the federal government a lot. Um... Clinton has already started cutting some federal government programs, but Gingrich and the Republicans want more. In particular, they want to get rid of all sorts of um, social programs, you know, health care, Medicaid, Medicare, welfare, uh, you know, paying money for the National Arts Council. Uh, there was some stuff in this time period about um, funding PBS or not. All sorts of things like that. Um, 
and so Clinton isn't budging. Clinton says, you know what, if any budget you send that cuts that, I'm going to veto. And even though you have a pretty good majority in the House, you don't have the supermajority needed to override a veto. Likewise, the Senate's kind of acting, huh-huh. So you got to give me something I can work with. Now, Gingrich responds by doing something no other uh, House, House Speaker of the House had done before, mainly because it was seen as political suicide. Uh, the federal government has to get its debt limit raised every at the end of every fiscal year. Uh, pretty much the federal government is like, hey, we're, we want to spend this much money. We don't have this much money in cash, but we're going to do it anyway. Before this time, it had pretty much been a rubber stamp. It had been absolutely nothing, just a rubber stamp. Very procedural. Mainly because if you don't approve the federal budget or don't approve the uh, federal debt limit, um, people get furloughed. A lot of people work for the federal government. Uh, they get their jobs from it. They get paid for it. They feed their kids from it. Likewise, national parks and things like that are part of the federal government. If you're not approved raising the federal debt limit, uh, are just you know you're you're pretty much saying we're going to close all this stuff. Gingrich isn't willing to do it. And as you go over one slide, you'll see in 1995, in November 95, Gingrich lets the government shut down. The government shuts down. I remember when this happened. I was in middle school when this happened, actually. Uh, get, get ready for a lot of talk about me in middle school, because a lot of stuff that happens in this time period happens when I'm in my middle school. But the federal government shuts down. This closes federal offices. Uh, federal workers go on furlough. National parks. Uh, federal benefits get closed for a while. For instance, a Social Security office. People can't apply for benefits. Uh, they're still getting their checks, but they can't apply for new benefits. That can be an issue. People wanting to get passports, that's a major issue. You know, think if you're a business person who has to do international travel. Sorry, I have the hiccups. You have to get uh, your passport approved. But passport offices aren't being open. This results in a lot of bad press. There are all sorts of bad press. And even though Gingrich is trying to spin it and say that it's partially Clinton's fault... This seems to fall solely on the Republicans. Republicans get a lot of backlash for this. Uh, another thing that has to do with this is Clinton, for his faults, and he had a lot of faults, was viewed as more charismatic and more likable than Gingrich. Uh, Gingrich was seen as too win at all cost, uh, just didn't seem to have the golden touch that Clinton had. Uh, there was a brief you know, pause in the, in, the, in the federal shutdown, but then there was a second one that lasted even longer which meant some federal workers don't get paid and their kids don't get Christmas presents over Christmas 95. Uh, the federal government was shut down over Christmas in 1995. By the time we get into early 1996, this is a complete PR nightmare. This looks horrible for the Republicans. Uh, Bob Dole, who is, running, who is planning to run for president in 96, says he has enough. He's like, hey, Republicans, we've made our point, but we've got to get the government back to work. Uh, eventually they do come to agreement, but the damage was done. Uh, Gingrich is definitely tarnished from this, and it shows that there is definitely a rift between Gingrich and Dole, and possibly within the Republican Party. Now, Clinton responds to this shutdown by deferring. Uh, at his State of the Union in 1996, go over one more slide, which happens like a month or two after the, not even a month or two, just like a couple weeks right after the government reopens, Clinton brags about reducing the number of federal jobs. He even makes a proclamation. You're not going to have to read the speech, but he makes a proclamation that, quote, the era of big government is over. He is a Democrat saying the era of big government is over. That is a Republican talking point if there ever was one. 
So once again, this is Bill Clinton seemingly being King Republican, even though he is indeed a Democrat. Uh, before we get to the midterm elections, I do, should talk a little bit about the Cold War vacuum. Uh, Clinton campaigned extensively on domestic issues, mainly because he has absolutely no foreign policy experience. Remember, he had never been a soldier. Uh, he never served overseas. Arkansas borders nothing. It, it, it borders Louisiana and Missouri and Texas and, uh, you know, Tennessee and I think Oklahoma for a little bit too. But nothing international borders Arkansas. Now, I, the Cold War is one of the big points of this entire class. So there's no sense avoiding it. It's one of the major themes of this class. The Cold War is over. And nobody's expecting another major conflict anytime soon. If there's going to be another conflict, they expected something like the Persian Gulf War, where the U.S. comes in really quick, kicks ass, and leaves. The problem is, though, they're realizing the New World Order has a bit of a vacuum. As bad as the Soviet Union was... Well, maybe not as bad as the Soviet Union was. That's a bit of a, more of a loaded term than I do. Sorry, i got to be totally down the middle. Um... Okay, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, all of these little satellite states that had been kept in line previously because of the fear of the Soviet Union start really rebelling against each other. You know, we talked a little bit about this, how this happened in Iraq and Iran. This really gets going, one more slide, in Bosnia, all right? I am not going to try to explain Bosnia because it is hella complicated and there's a million different minority groups and it's all these different countries. It's like Bosnia, Herzegovina, Sarajevo. Uh, you have the Serbs, you have the ethnic Albanians, you got the, the Bosnian Muslims, you got the Croats. Just know there are a bunch of itty bitty ethnic minorities in Eastern Europe who didn't like each other very much but were kept in line by the Soviets. But now that the Soviets are gone, they really, really, really don't like each other, and they start doing ethnic cleansings against each other. Uh, particularly the, I believe it's the Serbs, start cleansing the Muslims and the Croats, even though the Muslims are about an equal number to the Serbs. Like I said, it is complicated. Um, this is one of those times where I would need like eight hours in a flowchart to explain to you. And unlike the other things, you might actually get bored uh, not because it's unimportant, and I mean, it is genocide, but it is very complicated trying to explain all the different threads here. So just know that there is some ethnic cleansing going on. NATO doesn't care very much for it. Uh, nobody really cares very much for it. There is talk about what are we going to do now. Uh, NATO is going to lead a response. Clinton says, okay, I'll be a part of it. Basically, he sends troops to Bosnia in 94-95, I really hesitate to call it a war. I don't think anybody would call it a war. Um, yes, U.S. soldiers served there. Yes, some U.S. soldiers died there. Uh, but it wasn't like a rah-rah war. You're not seeing the levels of um, patriotism or rah-rah, hooray for America, like you see during the Persian Gulf War. It's also not as quick as the Persian Gulf War. The Persian Gulf War, like the shooting war, was five days. It's five or six days when they're on the ground. This one goes on for about a year, 94, 95. Um, mainly, like I said, it's a very complicated situation. Most Americans can't really get a good handle on it. Like, there's no clear good guy, bad guy. 
I mean, yes, there's Slobodan Lomosevich. Slobodan Milosevic. Sorry, it's one of those weird Eastern European names. Uh, he is definitely a bad guy. He is in charge of ethnic cleansing. But there's so many different groups, and it's very hard, aside from Slobodan, to find out who's the quote-unquote bad guy. Uh, the U.S. doesn't say they're too long, and Clinton makes pains to make sure Americans realize this is not a long-term thing. Um, unlike Iraq, which really shot up Bush's popularity, this conflict just kind of exists during Clinton's first term. Uh, it, it, it just kind of is. Clinton doesn't really get a lot of hooray for it. He kind of doesn't get a lot of bad about it. Now, another thing of the Cold War economy, go over one more slide, is a bonkers good economy. I really struggled with trying to find a picture of how good the 90s economy was. Uh, if you Google bonkers good 90s economy, you don't get much of anything. This is actually a picture of the 1990s show The West Wing. Um, I just thought it looked like business people in the 90s being all businessy, but whatever. Um, so just imagine something else with a bonkers good economy. Uh, the Cold War vacuum meant that America had a lot more money to, like, you know, we since we're no longer spending as much on Cold War stuff. Military spending goes way down, even though there are some politicians and hard, you know, hardliners who say we need to keep the military up. Uh, without the Soviets being an immediate threat, we really can't justify spending that much money on the military. Also, because of agreements like NAFTA, um, companies are growing. Uh, free trade has pretty much become the standard. Generally, economists like free trade. It grows economies. Now, it does have the side effect of lowering uh, wages, but it does cause the price of goods to go down tremendously. So what ends up happening is an economy kind of akin to the 1950s, in that America theoretically doesn't have that much competition. The oxygen, you know, the, the, the mental space that would have been used in fighting the Russians, which was, as we said, even the 80s, even though Reagan is doing very strong Cold War rhetoric, is still a major fear, just isn't happening. The difference is, though, Unlike the 50s, where America has no competition for, like, manufacturing, the U.S. has plenty of, man of manufacturing competition. You know, stuff is being made overseas all the time. Because of NAFTA, more manufacturing goes to, you know, Mexico. But the, co the definition of competition changed. In the 50s, nobody else was manufacturing things. In the 90s, other people were manufacturing things... But nobody could really compete with American intellectual property or ideas. American ideas reigned supreme. America took the oxygen out of the room when it came to ideas, when it came to mindset, when it came to what people were making. This, as I said, it's economics, it's culture. You need to understand this. This is one more, more of a philosophical thing. I was really thinking of two really good examples of this. So I'm going to give you two good examples. The first one is Michael Jordan. Um... Probably because that ESPN documentary has been on. <laughs> Michael Jordan really personified the 90s when it came to sport, but also for commerce. Michael Jordan was the king of the 90s. He was the biggest basketball player of the 90s. Argue maybe the greatest basketball player of all time. Certainly within the top three, if not top two, if not the best basketball player of all time. But the thing is, Michael Jordan was not just a guy playing basketball. He was also a product. He marketed himself. Nike and all these other companies, Hanes, Nike, Coke, McDonald's, they all tapped into that sweet, sweet Michael Jordan endorsement. Jordan made tons of money off of endorsements. 
Now, Air Jordans, you know, his, his signature shoe, they were made overseas. In fact, Nike got into some trouble for uh, child labor practices. But they were seen as an American product. You need to understand this. Even though Jordans were made overseas, they were made in Vietnam or Indonesia or wherever, they were seen as a way to promote Americanism. It doesn't matter if the product is made overseas. It is by its philosophy, by its nature, by its culture, by its ideas, by its intellectual propertyness. It is viewed as American. Because the economy is so good, and America is seen as so dominant, and we don't have the Soviets kind of fighting against us, Jordan becomes the biggest athlete in the world. He becomes the gold standard upon which all other things are, designed, are, are compared against. He pretty much becomes the 90s in a nutshell. Go over one more picture. You will see the 90s. Oh my gosh, that is a very 90s picture. That's Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson with uh, Macaulay Culkin. Fun little fact about Macaulay Culkin when I was a child, and you can check with my parents or my siblings about this, I looked exactly like Macaulay Culkin. It's eerie how much I looked like Macaulay Culkin when I was a kid, right around the time when Home Alone came out. If you don't know Home Alone, I pity you. It's a cute little movie where you know Macaulay Culkin is left home alone. He sets a trap for robbers. I remember being chased in the mall by kids who thought I was Macaulay Culkin. I know the adults knew I was Macaulay Culkin, but like kids, like my peers, like who didn't go to school with me, I'll never forget going to the Bon Marche Mall in Baton Rouge and like being chased by like a group of a dozen kids yelling, home alone, home alone, and trying to get my autograph. Like weird 90s, y'all. Like I said, most adults knew I wasn't Macaulay Culkin, but I looked enough like him that uh, the kids... Really, really, really thought I was Macaulay Culkin. Also, I just noticed something about this picture. Um, Macaulay Culkin is wearing Reebok pump shoes. The Reebok pumps, those were amazing. I never had a pair. I always wanted a pair. My parents never let me get them because they were so expensive. Even though he's next to Michael Jordan, who's the king of the Air Jordan. So, good on Macaulay Culkin for wearing the wrong shoes of Michael Jordan. Um, another thing that comes up is the internet, computers, technology. Uh, the internet really comes of age in the 90s. Now remember, the internet is theoretically worldwide. I mean, come on, it's the World Wide Web. Most computers are manufactured overseas. Most electronic parts comes from, like, you know, Asia or China or places, Japan, China, wherever, places like that. But the programs, you know, the, the, what you use on your computer was very American. The internet was seen as very American. The proto-memes, as it were, were American. This set the standard for what the expectation was for what it is like to be online. It changes the economy. You know, uh, the economy becomes very internet-centric, and America is seen at the center of it. Uh, this is a very 90s thing. This is a VHS Windows 95 guide uh, starring Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry. You can YouTube clips of it. It's very 90s. It's very 90s. But still, even though these pro even though these machines are being manufactured overseas, the content is often very American and the mindset is often very very American. Uh, I remember when computers and the internet, I mean computers have been around for a while. Uh, my dad was a computer junkie. He was always a he was an Apple junkie like during the 80s. 
So we were a little late to, like, uh, Windows. I didn't get a Windows machine until I was well into high school. I think it was, like, 98, 99, because my dad was an Apple guy. However, I remember first being introduced to email. Um, my sister went overseas in college as a foreign exchange student. She went to Wales in 94, 95. And my parents were a little worried because, you know, they, it was expensive to do foreign, you know, long-distance calls were quite expensive, and, uh, you know, mailing stuff to her was quite expensive, too, and they wouldn't know how they'd be able to keep in touch with her. And she was like, hey, well, you know, while I'm over there, we just got this new thing called email, and you can get it, too. And it was free, and it blew my mind. I'll never forget the first time I ever saw the, I would hesitate to call it the internet. It wasn't the World Wide Web, but, like, online. I uh, was with my godfather. My godfather, um, brilliant man, brilliant, brilliant man. He sadly passed away. Very big into technology. He is visually impaired. Uh, half Cajun, half Brazilian. So that's a, that's an interesting little mix right there. I, I remember going to his house, and he was all excited. That was probably, gosh, eight, nine years old. Yeah, my sister went over to Wales whenever I was 10. So probably nine years old. He was all excited. He's like, hey, you got to look at this. You got to look at this. And he got on his computer, and he's like, look, this is a library card catalog for a library in France. I'm looking at something in France. This is like my computer's in France right now. And I didn't understand what he was so excited about because I didn't understand French. But he was very excited about it, pointing and hooting. And, um, you know, my parents were all excited because we could email my sister for free. You know, international calls cost, you know, several dollars a minute. International postage cost a ton of money, but we could email. So I always associate the internet and email uh, with my sister going overseas. And it's really cool that, like, you know, I could get mail from her. And, you know, she'd write me a little letter, maybe a paragraph or two, and tell me what she was doing in Wales. And it was completely free. Uh, my parents had CompuServe. That's, uh, oh, uh, CompuServe does not exist anymore. Uh, that, it's like even before AOL or something. Uh, it did not have the internet worldwide web on it. It just had certain things. But it had email. And I remember looking at it. Uh, it was very primitive at this time period. I'm going on about the internet for a while, but you know what? It's my class, and pff, you got nothing better to do. We're all in quarantine. I remember another another early internet telly story, um, CompuServe story. I remember being so impressed because you could go to the IMES, the dog food uh, little section of CompuServe, and download an ad. And I remember it took, like, legitimately 10 minutes to download this print ad, and I was just amazed that it looked just like something I'd see in a magazine or in the newspaper. And it took forever to download. Now, I know I've been kind of going on for a while, but you have to realize, I'm trying to say this basically, the economy is so good. The economy is fundamental to understanding the 90s. You cannot understand the 90s without understanding the Cold War is over, but also just how good the economy is. It allows the U.S. to think about non-economic issues. The economy is not as pressing. I mean, yes, people are making tons of money, and people are excited about the economy and the internet and different things, but it's not like a recession or depression where that's all you can think about. Now, despite how good the economy was, go over one more slide, and how many Republican-ish things Clinton was doing, uh, Clinton is deeply unpopular with the far right and should have been an easy target. Uh, Clinton has decent approval numbers. However, there is polarization, which is definitely growing in the country. It's pretty much continuing to be the polarization we see today. I, I should have mentioned it earlier, but opposition to Clinton, if you go over one more slide, is a very consistent industry. 
and it made a lot of big names. Probably the biggest name of this time period for being an anti-Clinton person is Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, he is the prototypical to pretty much any other conservative pundit you've ever heard of. He gets a start in talk radio, uh, AM talk radio, which before this time was pretty much a, not even a ghost town, a nowheresville. He puts it on the map with some fairly hard right, you know, far to the right of the Republican Party policies. Uh, as I mentioned, tons of people could not stand Clinton. And this polarizing nature of him is continuing to grow. Why don't people like Clinton? Uh, a lot of different things. Uh, a lot of it is because of his demeanor. We'll get into this later, so I'll, I'll keep going. Uh, there is one candidate that the Republicans want more than anybody. There is one candidate which the Republicans desperately want. They think he can win against Clinton. He is the number one choice of every Republican in 1996. The problem is this guy really doesn't want to become president. Uh, the man is Colin Powell. Uh, Colin Powell, as you remember, Joint Chiefs of Staff head. Uh, he's the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's a black Republican war hero. He checks every possible box you can imagine. Member Clinton has been criticized for no military experience. Um, he's criticized for his moral issues, which we're going to get into later. Uh, Colin Powell is seen as pretty much the anti-Clinton. However, Colin Powell does not want to become president. Um, he tells Republicans all the time, I don't want to become president. He does issue a book in this time period, which kind of gets him like, on the news media in early 96, late 95, late 95, early 96. Yet he is very insistent, I do not want to become president. Um, also, his wife famously does not want him to become president, especially after reporters start trying to break into their house to like get interviews with him. Uh, she is not happy with none of that nonsense. After several, several, several refusals, Republicans finally get the idea maybe this Colin Powell guy doesn't want to gun for president, and so they have to figure out somebody who is going to run. Now, theoretically, if you had asked people in 1994 who the Republican nominee for president was going to be, Newt Gingrich would have been at the top of the list. Um, Gingrich had made a very effective playbook, which got you know Republicans both houses of Congress, so they hadn't had you know since the Roosevelt years. However, the shutdown makes Gingrich very unpopular, and he's also deemed kind of swarmy, kind of uh, unpresidential in his win-at-all-cost mentality. Uh, an early candidate for the Republicans who starts getting some attention is Pat Buchanan. I don't have a picture, but remember the name. He's going to become uh, important when we get into 2000. Uh, Pat Buchanan is a former Republican speechwriter. He worked under Nixon, Reagan, and Bush. Uh, he is very hard to the right. He is super hard to the right. Uh, Anti-immigration, all sorts of stuff, which gets him a lot of raised eyebrows He's viewed as too right-wing, too conservative for the Republican Party, uh, too draconian. Uh, who the Republicans eventually go with is Bob Dole. Bob Dole, who we've mentioned a few times before. He's pretty much the consolation prize. Dole was one of the few people who wanted to run for president in 96. Uh, he tries to frame his campaign as a more moral, more... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? More dignified version of Clinton. Because Dole can't run against Clinton when it comes to policy or issues. Because most of the big Republican uh, economic policies, Clinton's already doing. Likewise, the economy's really good. And Clinton is campaigning pretty much by doing Republican talking points. 
Uh, Clinton passes welfare reform. Uh, cutting the amount of time that people could be on welfare, the amount of benefits, also requiring that they search for work or work in order to get welfare. I've said this before and I'll say it again, the economy was insanely good. Uh, rates of unemployment, inflation, and mortgage interest rates were some of the lowest they'd been in 30 years. In fact, not even some of. They were the lowest. So unemployment was super low, interest rates were super low, as inflation was super low. Uh, Clinton goes one step even further during the campaign and says, hey, even though we didn't get the amendment passed, I will balance the budget. This is the key Republican talking point, is balancing the budget fiscal responsibility. Um, this is something that nobody had really accomplished in quite a while. Nobody even tried to balance the budget. And he says, I'm going to be able to do it while keeping all the social programs that Democrats like. So Medicare, Medicaid, we're keeping with it. Uh, Ross Perot does indeed run again. Uh, however, with the economy better, Perot does not get the residents. He does not get as many of the vote. He gets about 8% of the popular vote this time around, so he's kind of a non-factor. We'll talk about Perot in a second. Uh, go over one slide. This is a very easy victory for Clinton. Uh, he gets more electoral college votes. He gets about 59% of the popular vote to Dole's 41%. Electoral College League, Clinton gets uh, 379 votes versus Dole's 159. Uh, because of Perot's standing, because he doesn't really do much of anything in 96, he says he's not going to run for president again. However, he's going to keep the Reform Party around uh, as kind of a right-wing populist party. Uh, the Reform Party is going to become important as we go on, spoiler alert, uh, the Republican Party ends up kind of embodying some of the Reform Party's attitudes and policies, particularly with somebody like Donald Trump, who, if you don't know Donald Trump, he's president now. I'm shocked you missed that one, but yeah, Donald Trump, president. So even though Clinton has won a fairly easy re-election, uh, this does not stop Clinton's critics. Most of the hatred of Clinton becomes very personal, because his policies are actually in line with pretty much Republican talking points. So the criticism of Clinton becomes really, really personal. Uh, there's a nickname for Clinton that's stuck for a while, actually since his first term, of Slick Willie. Uh, you're going to hear the term Slick Willie quite a bit for uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, basically, they thought he was too good of talking his way out of stuff, and that somebody so glib couldn't be sincere. They thought he might be, you know, he's too good of a communicator. Like Unlike Reagan, who they held as a great communicator, they held this Clinton guy, he, he just seems sleazy. Now, there have long been accusations of Clinton engaging in some shady economic dealings. Uh, most notably, when he was governor of Arkansas, uh, there was something to do with what's called the Whitewater Affair. Whitewater, one word, not Watergate. I, I swear at some point in this podcast, I'm going to accidentally say the term Watergate. I assure you, I mean Whitewater. Uh, Whitewater was a business development deal that was, it was supposed to be a resort on the White River in Arkansas. Uh, the developers turned out to be kind of crooked. Uh, Clinton uh, and Hillary Clinton and also some partners in Hillary Clinton's law firm invested some money in it. However, they pulled out of their money pretty early and they didn't lose their money whenever the development went uh, belly up. And so there are accusations about maybe they were trying to defraud investors, maybe there was some insider trading, something like that. Uh, there had also long, 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 long been rumors about Bill Clinton's romantic liaisons. Uh, Jennifer Flowers and Paula Jones are two such women 
who bring lawsuits against Clinton during his first term, uh, basically accusing him of sexual stuff whenever he's governor of Arkansas. It really comes to play during his first uh, term. Uh, nothing is ever proven, but the stories never really go away as well as the taint. Uh, there have always been insinuations of Clinton messing around with women. Uh, early in his campaign for president, he says something along the lines of, like, I- I've caused you know Hillary grief in our marriage, but he doesn't say that he's cheated on her. It- it- it's-, it's weird. It's weird language. That's all I'm going to say. Still, the Whitewater story has some legs, and it has enough legs, and it stay, has enough staying power that eventually Congress, now that it's you know, led by the Republicans, in, uh, appoints an independent special counsel. Uh, ordinarily, I'd have to explain this to y'all, but we just live in the Trump stuff, so y'all remember that. You know, Mueller, all that good stuff. However, it's not Mueller in 1997-ish. It is Ken Starr. Uh, Ken Starr, he's supposed to be independent. He's a former Republican judge, uh, kind of Republican judiciary figure. He's theoretically picked to be independent, but um, anyway, he's picked to do the investigation. Now, he is only supposed to investigate Whitewater. Right? He's given a lot of access. He's given a ton of access to the White House. He can see all sorts of documents. He can interview pretty much whoever he wants. He is only supposed to investigate Whitewater. And he actually doesn't find any evidence of anything too bad with Whitewater. Um, there's really no evidence of Clinton doing anything improper, he or Hillary doing anything improper. However, what he does discover while investigating is that not only had Clinton been having an affair in the White House, but it was with an intern and he was trying to cover up. Uh, the intern in question is one Monica Lewinsky. Uh, if you go over one picture you will see Monica Lewinsky and Bill. I don't know who the guy smiling in the background is, but I don't know, he's some guy. Uh, Monica Lewinsky was a 22-year-old intern for Bill Clinton. Uh, At the time of their affair, I believe Clinton was like 49, maybe he was 50, somewhere along there. Uh, She was an intern of his. Uh, She was a White House intern. They started having a relationship, uh, ironically, during the government shutdown, whenever things were kind of quiet. They started messing around. Uh, Clinton is asked about this during the Paula Jones deposition. He has to do a deposition for a lawsuit he has about uh, his sexual improprieties. He's asked if there's any truth that he's having an affair with anybody. He says no. They're like, what about this Monica Lewinsky character? He says under oath, no, I haven't had sex with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, Likewise, whenever this story broke in 1998, early 1998, I should mention that, this becomes the story of 1998. I was in... um, it was my eighth grade year in 1998, in the beginning of high school, later 1998. Pretty much the entirety of my eighth grade year was dominated by this story. Once it broke in early 98, uh, it broke through the Drudge Report, which I think is still around. Drudge Report, it's a it's a website, kind of an ag- news aggregator. Uh, basically, it broke that hey, there has been a you know Bill Clinton has been having an affair. Uh, the earlier stuff never said Monica Lewinsky's name. However, Drudge released her name. He said her name's Monica Lewinsky. She's a 22-year-old intern. Uh, She has been having an affair with Clinton, and Clinton said under oath that he didn't have an affair, but she has all sorts of evidence of it. Uh, You know, phone call logs, uh, gifts, and things like that. Um, All right, Tully's going to have to get gross for a second. She had a dress which supposedly had a DNA sample, shall we say, of Clinton. Um, 
whatever, we're all adults, a semen sample of Quentin on there. So basically she has all this uh, um, evidence of an affair. Now, as I said, this became the story of 1998. Uh, critics of Quentin now have a smoking gun that seemingly vindicate all the horrible things they say about him before. Like all the other previous things they said about Quentin possibly messing around with people, it seems like it's totally, you know, against him. Um, under oath in Paula Jones, he says that he didn't have sex with uh, Monica Lewinsky. Likewise, you'll see the video clip of him saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. More of my bad uh, presidential impressions. You know, he repeats this on TV. He tells his wife that, you know, we never had sex, that sort of thing. She had stood by him through all sorts of stuff. However, the investigation showed, and you will read the investigation. I remember when this was published. Whenever the Star Report was published, it was put in newspapers. Um, I remember well, I was living in Baton Rouge. The Baton Rouge Advocate... I was living in Baton Rouge. Like, I had a choice. I was a kid. I'm from Baton Rouge. I remember the Baton Rouge Advocate publishing the Star Report, and it had all the salacious details. Um, the investigation showed that, okay, Tully's going to have to be whatever. Uh, not whatever. Whatever adults, fine. It showed that Bill Clinton and Mono Lewinsky did indeed not have vaginal intercourse. However, they did other stuff. They engaged in things that were sexual in nature, but weren't vaginal, conventional intercourse, the kind that could conceivably produce a kid. It also showed that while under oath, Clinton had done some very impressive legal wrangling and all sorts of uh, <laughs> interesting things. He he asked what the definition of is is at one point. That was I remember that was one little clip that got circulated a lot where he's asking what the definition of is is, which was kind of funny. Uh, he does admit though that he had a quote intimate inappropriate relationship with Monica Lewinsky, and he even admits this in front of the American people, where basically he's like, yeah, I never had sex with Monica, not vaginal sex, but we did other stuff. Uh, once Clinton admitted to the affair, this his critics wasted no time trying to see if they could get him removed. Uh, there is tons of moral opposition to Clinton. Uh, for instance, you will read a letter from Dr. James Dobson. James Dobson is head of Focus on the Family. This is another one of those um, post-moral majority, you know... Post-moral majority Christian coalition, uh, Christian, you know, evangelicalism and politics organizations. Uh, Focus on the family was committed to what it called traditional, um, traditional family, uh, traditional, traditional family values. They're very big on tradition. Uh, in the letter, as you're going to read, Dobson's like pretty much Clinton has lost his moral authority. You know, if you can't trust a man to be honest and stay faithful to his wife, can you trust him to run the country as a man of integrity? However, um, having an affair is not against the law. Even if you're president of the United States, it's not against the law to cheat on your wife. Now, you're definitely going to have consequences. Um, Hillary Clinton ultimately chose not to leave Bill, but uh, there was talk that she might have at the time period. In fact, she got some criticism that she didn't leave Bill in this time period from, from some women's groups. But still, it's not against the law. It might be unsightly. Um, you're definitely going to have consequences with your wife, especially with your wife. If you if you cheat on your wife, there will be consequences, but they may not be legal consequences. 
However, what is an issue is not that Bill Clinton had an affair, but if you lie under oath, likewise, if you encourage others to lie under oath, uh, Bill Clinton encouraged Monica Lewinsky whenever she was deputized for the, um, whenever she had to give a deposition for the Paula Jones lawsuit to lie about their affair, that could be an issue. Uh, lying under oath is perjury. Um, asking somebody else to lie under oath is obstruction of justice. And those are very, very much crimes. So Clinton, if you go over one more slide, he is brought up on articles of impeachment. In fact, he is ultimately impeached for the issue uh, by a Republican House who didn't like him in the first place. It wasn't necessarily that they thought what Clinton did was egregious. It was pretty much what they could get him on. Uh, the Republicans who did this expected this to gain momentum as it went on. Uh, their base was very fired up about this, very energized, and most Democrats were not going too far out of their way to defend them. Uh, whenever the scandal broke, uh, most Democrats didn't say that he needed to resign, but they weren't exactly you know, standing in line to defend him and make sure that he stayed in office. Uh, like I said, Clinton is ultimately impeached. He becomes only the second president impeached after Andrew Johnson. Uh, Donald Trump has also been impeached. So Trump has been impeached as well. However, what's interesting is that Clinton's approval numbers actually go very high during the impeachment. Um, Donald Trump has never had very good approval numbers. His approvals didn't really go down, but they certainly didn't go up during his impeachment stuff, uh, Clinton's approval numbers actually go up. His approval numbers go up, and the Republicans have lowered approval numbers. Their approval numbers go down. Now, either because the economy was just that good, or because people understood why he might lie about it, or they thought it might not have been a very big deal. You know, yes, he might have cheated on his wife, but it wasn't like he did anything too bad. Likewise, the perjury and obstruction of justice it's understandable why he might lie about an affair or why he might encourage somebody to do it. Republicans, like I said, they get less popular as, as impeachment goes on. Uh, by the time it gets to be a Senate in early 1999, uh, Clinton is in no danger of being removed from office. It fails in the Senate. Clinton's indeed impeached. He remains a lame duck throughout the rest of his presidency. Um, once he gets into 1999, 2000, Clinton doesn't do all that much. But the economy is still very good. Uh, I should mention this. This is something I make a much bigger deal about my 256 class, but something you need to mention, I do need to talk about. Uh, Clinton has budget surpluses during this time period, uh, mainly because the economy is doing very well and he's cut spending so much. Not only had he balanced the budget, he actually had more money. Uh, this demonstrated that economic policy, which is ironically following the Republican dream, was working. The economy is doing really well. Uh, when we get into the 2000 election, which I may or may not talk about this part of the 2000 election, I'm certainly going to talk about the 2000 election next class, uh, there is a lot of hullabaloo about what to do about these surpluses. Um, Republicans say we've been taking too much in taxes. These budget surpluses show we need to cut taxes even more, and we need to give this money back to the American people. Democrats say we can spend it on social programs. Uh, Al Gore talks about we should save Social Security with it, make a lockbox. Uh, what ultimately happens to the surpluses is the Iraq War. <laughs> uh, wars cost money, and that's what happened to all of our budget surpluses was the Iraq War. 
anyway, that's kind of Clinton in a nutshell. Um, that pretty much is the 90s when it comes to Clinton. However, I'm not going to leave y'all with just Clinton because there's a lot of other stuff going on. Let's talk about culture for a second. Uh, although the Cold War is over and things look like Happy Days 2.0, like the 1950s or something, it wasn't as though Americans are free of fear. It's very easy to look at back in the 90s as kind of an oasis of America being kind of chill, uh, between the fear of terrorism and the fear of the Cold War, kind of an island when America wasn't really afraid of anything. There was some things going on in America. There were some issues that we were concerned about. But I'm not going to lie, it was pretty idyllic. It was pretty idyllic. The economy was pretty good. As you see from the slide, all sorts of fun things going on in the 90s, like the T-Rex from Jurassic Park and Harry Potter and Beepers and is that Oasis? Oh my god, I forgot about Oasis. Ugh. Anyway, uh, now the lack of the Cold War meant that the country could focus on domestic issues. Uh, particularly some issues that have kind of been brewing for a while, such as civil rights. Uh, yes, the civil rights movement was theoretically over. Uh, theoretically, African Americans had equality without the country. However, there were some lingering issues, primarily with economic opportunities and policing. If you go over one slide, you will see Rodney King. Uh, Rodney King in 1991 was a motorist in Los Angeles. He led police on a high-speed pursuit for a while. Uh, he claimed he was drunk or high or something. Um, it was a quite, a, quite, a, quite a pursuit. Anyway, whenever the police do pull him over, uh, four of these police officers beat him very harshly with, uh, with their billy clubs. Uh, and this would not, might not have been an issue except for a videotaper videotapes it. Uh, a, a, a third party, uh, an onlooker videotapes this, and it actually gets out. And the cops who do this are charged with police brutality. Now, this had long been an issue in Los Angeles. If you take my black history course or my rap history course, hey, rap history, coming next semester, take it. I will talk about Los Angeles history with policing and the Watts riots. Um, if you pay attention to stuff today, you will see that there is still conversations about policing in African-American communities. So um, I don't think I'm telling you anything you haven't heard before when I say that African-Americans and cops, there is stuff to talk about there. Now, these cops are charged with police brutality. That is a crime. They're charged with police brutality. They're supposed to get their day in court. However, early on, their lawyers argue successfully for a change of venue. They say that the police cannot get a fair trial in Los Angeles. They say the population of Los Angeles, which is primarily African-American and L.A. proper, um, if you're not familiar with Los Angeles, it's not really one city. It's an assortment of like a bazillion different cities that have merged into a giant metropolitan area. But it's like, you know, Anaheim, Pasadena, whatever, Watts. They're all theoretically separate cities, but they're all in one giant metro. So they argue for a change of venue. They go to Simi Valley. Uh, Simi Valley is a very white suburb. It's where Ronald Reagan had his ranch. And that's where the trial is. Uh, the, the verdict comes out in 1992. Uh, Clinton is not president this time. It's in April 92, but it's still the 90s, so I'm going to talk about it. The verdict comes out, and all four cops are found innocent. They are acquitted of all the crimes. Actually, one of them gets a, like a hung jury, but three of them are completely acquitted of the crimes. This causes a firestorm. Go in one more slide. This causes the L.A. riots. 
which remain the biggest riots in U.S. history. Uh, they're bigger than pretty much any other riot in U.S. history, bigger than the Watts riots, which they replaced, bigger than the Detroit riots, bigger than the riots after Martin Luther King died, which we talked about in this class, uh, bigger than even the draft riots of New York during the Civil War. This is the biggest riot in U.S. history in terms of destruction, in terms of loss of property, in terms of deaths, in terms of injured, in terms of arrest. This is huge. It goes on for about a week in Los Angeles, mainly in African-American communities, in places like South Central. There are a lot of issues at play here. This podcast has gone on long enough, so I'm not going to go deep into it. Uh, I'll get into it later at a different class or something. But just know there's a lot of different dynamics. It wasn't just this one police case. There's a million other things going on. Now, you need to know about this Rodney King stuff because this helps explain, let's go one more slide, about the biggest trial of the 90s and possibly the biggest trial ever, the O.J. Simpson trial, which also happened in Los Angeles just a few years after the L.A. riots, about three years after the L.A. riots, the O.J. trial. Now, if you're unfamiliar with O.J. Simpson, aside from this murder trial, um, let me give you a little bit about him. Uh, O.J. Simpson, he's a former NFL football player. He got a Heisman Trophy. He was really good in football. Uh, he retired. He, he was one of the first NFL players to ever get a 2,000-yard season. I know that. He, uh, he's a running back. He later retires, joins a broadcast booth. He does movies. I remember when I was a kid, I used to love O.J. Simpson and the Naked Gun movies. He was funny in those. However, despite his uh, showing of being a nice, clean, nice, clean dude, he had issues. Go over one slide. He had a history of domestic violence against his wife and then ex-wife, Nicole Brown. It had gotten swept under the rug for years, mainly because of his celebrity. Um, he was famous. There had been talk about, you know, cops have been called over quite a bit. You know, to see O.J. after he beat up his wife for a while, they did not have a very good relationship. They did have two kids. They had a very contentious relationship. Ultimately, they did divorce. Ultimately, they did divorce. However, this was something not known to the general public. Uh, the general public generally saw O.J. Simpson as a nice dude. He was the guy from the Hertz commercials. You know, he's the funny dude from the Naked Gun movies. He does uh, football broadcasting. He had a very clean public image. Um, he, O.J. Simpson is also black, but because of his notoriety, it was said he wasn't treated like a black person. Uh, a, a quote attributed to O.J. is, you know, I'm not black, I'm O.J. The idea being that he's so famous and so rich, he's not able, he's not really susceptible to the stuff that most African Americans are dealing with. Um, you know, listen to the O.J. story of O.J. song by Jay-Z, or, you know what, we're under quarantine. I believe it's still in ESPN. They did it excellent documentary about this called Made in America uh, about OJ and the trial. It's a 10-part series, kind of like that Michael Jordan one going on right now. I would highly recommend it if you're ever curious about OJ Simpson. Um, so, yeah, check out that documentary. It's very good. It's one of the few times you hear me say that something else can somebody else can tell you better about it than I can. But it's a long documentary, but it's worth it. And it's coronavirus. Once school's over, watch it. It's fun. Okay, so this is kind of the backdrop, and this really becomes a story in 1994 when Nicole and a friend of hers, Ron Goldman, are found murdered. Um, might be her boyfriend, might be whatever, uh, we don't know. But they are found murdered, 
And it's really not that big of a story. I mean, yeah, it's kind of sad because it's OJ's ex-wife. I mean, that's kind of the celebrity element of it. It's really not talked about too much. And OJ is a obvious suspect because of a lot of circumstantial evidence. Uh, for instance, um, there are tire marks at the scene that match his car. Uh, there's his DNA on the knife, uh, blood that is used to stab them. Uh, there's a glove that has his DNA on it at the crime scene, and its matching glove is at his house, and it's a very rare glove, a very rare expensive glove. And so there is globs of circumstantial evidence uh, that O.J. Simpson is a suspect, let's just say. If I'm not saying he's guilty. I'm just saying there's enough to bring him in for questioning. Likewise, the history of you know domestic violence against his wife. Uh, O.J. is called in to come for questioning. Remember, he is a celebrity. He's not handcuffed. He's told to come in at his own time. He says, finally, all right, look, cops, I will, I will come to you. I met my friend um, Robert Kardashian's house, his lawyer friend Robert Kardashian. If the name sounds familiar, it should. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, he says he's going to come out. He doesn't. Here's where it gets effing weird. Go for one more slide. O.J. flees Robert Kardashian's house in a white Bronco. Not his own white Bronco, but an identical white Bronco owned by his friend and former teammate Al Collins. Uh, Al Collins is the one driving the Bronco in the famous Bronco chase. O.J. is not driving. O.J. is in the back seat with a gun to his head telling the cops, hey, I'm going to go see my mom for the last time and then I'm going to kill myself. I didn't kill my wife, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to live anymore. Um... I'm going to kill myself. I just want to see my mom one last time. Now, this turns uh, what could have been an object of some interest into, holy crap, biggest story ever. And I remember this. I remember I was visiting my um, aunt's mom. That sounds like a much more distant relationship. And, like, she was my cousin's grandma, but not mine. But I have a very small family, so she's kind of like my grandma. She lived in Metairie. I remember we were just watching TV, and all of a sudden... The, the OJ chase came on and then my parents were like, all right, well, we're going to leave. And like, I remember listening to it on the radio, which listening to the car chase on a radio is not as interesting as watching it. I will tell you that. Anyway, OJ eventually gets to his mama's house. He says, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to fight this case. Um, this turns into the story. He brings together what he calls his legal dream team. Uh, headlined by, let's see, oh my gosh, all these names. Uh, there's Robert Shapiro, Johnny Cochran in the middle, probably the biggest name. You got Alan Dershowitz, who is, uh, Alan Dershowitz, he's still, he's involved with Trump stuff now. Um, Robert Kardashian is on his legal team too. Uh, Robert Kardashian, if you go over one slide, that is OJ's really good friend. Um, he's, you know, he's the one whose house he was at before the, the Bronco chase. Uh, Robert Kardashian has some daughters, who you might be familiar with, because, yeah, Kim, Chloe, and Courtney, and all them other Kardashians, those are Robert's kids. The only reason we know about Kim Kardashian or care about Kim Kardashian is because of the OJ trial. Had it not been for the OJ trial, nobody would care about the Kardashians. So his legal dream team decides to argue that OJ uh, is not guilty, but rather he's the victim of a giant racist conspiracy by the Los Angeles police against African-Americans, against black men. Okay, I, I could go on and on about this, and maybe I will whenever we get pizza, whenever this is all over. Uh, but I need, to, I need you to understand, this becomes the 
thing in the United States. Like, pretty much until the case ends in 1995, this is the issue. I would even argue it's bigger than the Lewinsky thing, even. Uh, pretty much the entirety of 1995 is the trial. Like, bars would show it, like, that have happy hour to watch the OJ trial. Uh, Core TV becomes a cable channel during this time. It was on everywhere. Uh, another personal anecdote about this, I've told a lot of stories this class, but whatever, it's my childhood. Uh, I remember going shopping with my mom at Dillard's. Uh, my mom was a mom, as most moms are. <laughs> my mom, you know, my mom shopped for clothes, and I was the youngest by, by quite a bit. I'm the youngest of my siblings for about 10 years. And so there was a lot of times where I, I had to go with my mom to do her chores, or just she had to go shopping, and I don't know if you've ever been a young kid. Well, of course you've been a young kid, but shopping for clothes with your mom is the most boring, especially when it's ladies' clothes, because, like, you have nothing to do with it, and I'm, like, I'm, like, a... I'm a middle school kid who's like, oh, I don't want to be seen with my mama. It's embarrassing, but, like, I was too young to stay at the house at this time. I wasn't even middle... Yeah, I was in middle school. I was, like, 10, 11 years old at this time period. And uh, I'll never forget, we went to Dillard's, and, like, you know, whenever I was a kid, I was able to, like, hide in the clothes racks and junk, but I was too old for that because, you know, I was... I was 10, and, like, it's cute whenever you're a little kid to do that, but not when you're older. And I remember that at Dillard's, in the women's clothing section, they had the OJ trial on. My mom's like, look, watch the OJ trial, and uh, I'll come pick you up in a couple hours. Not a couple hours, but I'll pick you up, you know, whenever I'm done shopping. It was maybe, like, 10, 15, let's say 15, 30 minutes. So I'll never forget just sitting in Dillard's watching the OJ trial while my mom was trying on clothes, and I remember, like, the... The, you know, the, the, the the workers coming out and be like, hey, what are you doing here? Like, you can't just loiter here. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm with my mom. She's trying on clothes. I'm a 10-year-old boy. I, I really have no business being in the women's clothing section. It's really boring. So let me just sit here and watch O.J. Simpson trial. They're like, all right, that works for us. So that is the trial. Um, eventually, O.J. is indeed found uh, innocent. He's found not guilty. Did he do it? We're not getting in there. Maybe over pizza. Uh, aside from racial issues, go over one more slide. The country does debate a host of issues, gender, environmentalism, uh, globalism is a big one. This is at a famous protest that happens in Seattle in 1999, a whole host of other issues, but I would argue it seems somewhat segmented. It doesn't seem as immediate as the Cold War. It was something that could be put on the back burner, as it were. It wasn't like omnipresent, clear and present, we have to think about it. We're having fears and crises, but they could be segmented off. And by the way, I have to mention, the economy is so stinking strong. Entertainment has globs of money. Go over one more slide. Uh, the 90s were a pretty fun time to be a childhood. There was so much excess in this time period. Um, I, I, like Just the amount of money spent on children's entertainment was ridiculous. Uh, compare the lavish animations and full orchestration of something like Animaniacs or Batman, the animated series. Um, it's the, Okay, orchestration is expensive, and the fact that these cartoons have, like, unique orchestration, the entire episode for every episode, just shows the, number of, the amount of money spent. The fluidity of the animation. Uh, done things like uh, Tokyo Ganji Studio, TGS, which is a very famous uh, cartoon studio in, in Tokyo, does the animations for a lot of these early um, Disney, anim not Disney, well, some of them are Disney. Did, did they do some Disney afternoon? But like some of these Warner Brothers, like Batman the Animated Series or Animaniacs, Tiny Toon Adventures, it's just excessive. 
That, that's the one word I would use to describe the uh, um, the '90s is excessive. Um, I, I kind of put this on Facebook and asked some of my you know peers what they thought about the '90s, what they remember the '90s, and just and what I got was a lot of responses which were really about just how much stuff was like how things were omnipresent. Yes, I know we were kids and we thought it was a, it was all around, but just the lavishness of it. I, I keep going back. I mean, yes, I'm a culture guy, but seriously, watch an episode of Animaniacs and like. Notice the amount of, like, animation that's done, the fluidity of it, but also just the orchestration. That is tons of money. Um, another thing I talk about, yeah, because of my class, I mean, rap music goes very excessive. Rap music started out in the 90s with gangster rap. By the time you get to the late 90s, it is just the rap of excess. Um, exemplified by Mo Money, Mo Problems, by one uh, Puff Daddy, Sean Puff Daddy Combs. Um, you can watch, I make y'all watch the video. Just notice the production. You know, they're in wind tunnels. They have the fisheye lens, shiny suits, big budgets. That, that is rap music of this time period. It's just like excess of commercialization. Um, the other video I have, as promised, is the most 90s thing you will ever see in your entire life. This is a video which I never really heard of before. This is probably the most early 90s thing you'll ever see. Uh, it's a video by Biv10, which is a production t- company by Michael Bivens, who was part of New Edition. Okay, that doesn't really matter who he is. Just to know this is a demo video for his record label. And there are all these artists you have never heard of because none of these artists ever made it. And yet when you watch them, you see that they're prototypical 90s. It's just fascinating. Like It's like you watch it and you're like, oh, I've seen that archetype before but you've never heard of any of these people, except at the end when Boys to Men shows up, but they're already an established group. Also, if you like the show Community, um, hi, Jack Bach, because you mentioned that during our thing, uh, surely um, y- Yvette Nicole Brown is actually mentioned, uh, is actually shown. She was signed to them for a while, so that's a fun little Easter egg you're going to see there. Like I said, you don't have to watch that video, but it's very 90s. Uh, the 90s, I will say, was a pretty good time to be a kid, that being said, all was not great for the kids. And by the way, kids of this time period, these are your millennials. We talked about how the 50s were a formative time for the baby boomers. This is the formative time for millennials. So kind of like boomers, millennials come of age in a time where the economy is like bonkers good when they're little kids, and they're promised a world they didn't necessarily have because once they become of age, the economy totally changes. Also, these are your early millennials. Um... These are typically the second kids of baby boomers. Uh, Generation X is the kids of baby boomers, but so are millennials. Uh, my parents are probably the primo example of this. I've mentioned them many times before. Both my parents are baby boomers, born in 1950. Uh, my siblings are both Gen Xers. My f- siblings were born in the early 70s, but I was born in the 80s, and I'm very much a millennial, whereas my siblings are very much Generation Xers. And even though my siblings have the same parents, we definitely had two different childhoods. My parents were not the same individuals they were in the 1980s as they were in the 70s and the 90s. Uh, by the time the 90s came around, both my siblings had moved out of the house. They were young adults. They were doing their own thing. And my parents were different. And so that's kind of what you have here. Uh, probably the big scare for, it comes late in the 90s, is Columbine. It comes in 1999. I was a freshman in high school when this happened. Um, in fact, whenever you watch Columbine coverage, it's weird because Bill Clinton is the president. I always assume George W. Bush with this. But um, it shows that fears like a school shooting could be immediate. This is not like the Cold War, where Russia is an existential omnipresent threat. 
School shootings are immediate threat. It showed by having access to money and material possessions aren't enough to offset a dysfunction. Uh, if you read up on the Columbine shooters, they're you know upper middle class kids who were given everything. You know they had access to all sorts of stuff, a lot of material possessions. They seemed to have pretty idyllic childhoods. They weren't coming from broken homes, and yet they saw maybe that wasn't enough. And they, you start having more fears be illuminated. Uh, there's fears of video games, uh, fears of the internet. Uh, both of these students used it extensively. And there's fear of these because, you know, all this new media that's coming up in the 90s, I've told you that uh, technology is one of the things that is one of the uh, trademarks of this class. It shows that there's new fears to be had. Another thing that happens in the late 90s, actually 1999, which is going to change the economy for entertainment, is Napster. Uh, Napster is a music download service, whereas, yes, you know, music is making tons of money and albums are growing, you know, diamond, which is ten times, you know, ten tuple platinum. It shows that the music business is about to change. Even though the music business is at their apex, it's about to come crashing down because Napster makes music free. It shows that media was going to change from the internet and money may not be easy to be made. Still, I have to say it was a pretty good time to be a kid. But it shows that things are about to get a lot more complicated. Uh, the 90s are very much a transitional time. You're going to have some lingering fear of the Cold War from the 80s, but you don't have the fear of terrorism that comes about in the early 2000s, after September 11th. There is so much optimism going on, but there is still fear. The roots of the conflicts that are going to come into play once we get into the 2000s are evident, but they're not so clearly evident as to offset anything. We do indeed have fear. You know, we do indeed have things that, you know, take up our mental space that was otherwise occupied by the um, Cold War when it was going on, but it wasn't happening in this time period. It was almost a weird respite. You know, the 1999, and, and I kind of close with this, I don't even have notes on this one, but I was thinking about this. I think The Phantom Menace kind of embodies a lot of the 90s. Uh, Star Wars The Phantom Menace was probably the most hyped thing to ever come out. I remember I was a kid. I was in high school. I was a Star Wars nerd. I thought this was going to be the greatest thing of all time. You know, it's been 20 some odd A Star Wars movie had not come out in my lifetime, and even though I was a big Star Wars nerd, it was going to be the biggest thing ever. Big budget, big commercialization. And we finally watched it. And, you know, technologically at the time, it was impressive. But the technology doesn't really hold up when you watch it now. Um, Story-wise, it seemed to possibly lack a soul. I know some of y'all might be prequel kids, and y'all think it's the greatest ever, and Clone Wars and all those cartoon shows you might have liked as a kid. But just, just, just for me, just for me, it just seemed like it didn't have the same panache as the earlier things. And that's kind of the 90s in a nutshell. It's big budget. It seems impressive. It costs a lot of money. It has technological prowess but maybe it doesn't hold up as great as it should have in retrospect. But that's me. So that is the 90s in a nutshell. If you look over your documents, I think I hit on most of them when, you're going, when we were talking about it. In fact, I did. Um, yeah. When you're thinking about your written assignment, about um, what, you know, what is taking up the mental space of the 90s, think about these issues. Maybe focus on just one of them. You know, maybe just focus on racial issues with the O.J. Simpson trial. Or perhaps focus upon, um, you know, excess with 90s, uh, with, with commercialism and things like that. 
it's a very interesting time, and I, it's very important to focus upon the 90s when you're talking about what happens, and really when it comes to the end of the Cold War. But before we get to the war on terror and 9-11, and it's, it's almost like the 1920s almost, or maybe like the 50s. In fact, I would say that the 20s and the 50s have a lot in common with the 90s, and that they're kind of 10-year-long respites that get viewed idyllically in retrospect, but actually have some issues. So with that, this is Dr. Tully for what was probably a very long uh, podcast, but you know what? I enjoyed it. Hope you all enjoyed it, too. Take care. Miss y'all.